Welcome to the Beyond Beauty Podcast, a platform to highlight the beauty's industry talent, deconstruct their learnings, and spark ideas for your own business. The Beyond Beauty Podcast is created by Dilly, the leading creative agency working with the fastest growing brands in the industry. Here, we'll interview guests from major beauty corporations, creative directors, influencers, and founders, and even risk-taking entrepreneurs. Our guests are not only changing the traditional beauty landscape, they're also innovating in e-commerce, branding, and digital marketing. Join us as they share valuable advice, how they launch their business, and most importantly, ignite thought-provoking conversations across beauty, tech, and marketing. So Miriam, thanks for joining us. Of course, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting we're, me. We're super excited. It's been a while. Um, so Miriam, uh, you work with QuickFrame, who now is uh, owned by Mountain as of uh, a few months ago. And you are one of the senior managers of creator operations. Did I get that correctly? Correct. Yep. The creator team. So basically for everyone listening, Miriam is our point of contact with QuickFrame. So she uh, brings opportunities to agencies and creators like Dilly. And she basically, from what I understand, you work to match the best creators, the best opportunities uh, based on the clients that QuickFrame by Mountain works with. Is that right? I should get you to explain it when people ask <laughs> better than I could have said. Yeah. Yeah. I tried. I tried my best. I did a little bit of research, but I saw a little bit from your background and you have a production background. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. Starting production. So one of the, one of the best things that a production agency can have is a, a client point of contact that is actually a producer. Because so many times we talk to, you talk to account managers, you talk to like client relationships and so they don't have a production background and they'll ask us crazy things and they'll say, oh, can you get this done by like tomorrow, two days from now, because I have no understanding of what it actually takes to produce something. So the yes. fact that you have a production background is, it's amazing. Yes. It's a shorthand for sure. Yeah. It's just, you, you understand at least what it takes. And when you translate a request from a client, at least this is possible or this is not. That's what some of some friends of mine who are creators also would say to me was the best help that I could give them is being able to translate information back and forth from creator speak to client speak and vice versa. So it's been beneficial. It's been a great experience. And I think for us, a lot of the times with production, it's so hectic because when you're on, when you're shooting, when you're like on site and then things change, having somebody that can act as like a buffer and a liaison with a client. And they can actually translate what a client wants into production terminology and like mm -hmm. executables on the production sense. It's super helpful. How did you find that transition between being a producer to working at somewhere like QuickFrame? So it, it was a path to get here. Definitely Tell us. Some twists, some twists and turns. All right. So here's the rundown. I came from my own production background. I made a production on my own. I didn't have anybody around me who was in production. It was something where after high school, everybody was going, knew what they wanted to do, had a path, going to college. And I decided I wanted to embark on a, filming a documentary. So I launched a Kickstarter, 25 grand, all oh, or nothing, wow. 30 day campaign when I was about 19 or so. It was going to be just raising money for a documentary for about child sexual abuse in the Middle oh, East. Wow. Yeah. And I was 19. I had never picked up a camera. I actually thought at that point that the amount of time, the amount of screen time that you watch is the amount of screen time that you capture. So if it's a 30 minute show, it takes 30 minutes to capture. 
<laughs> so I was really, yeah, sort of. So that's definitely the magic, what it looks like. So I went in as blind as a bat and had to learn and fall and figure things out with the help, leaning on the help of DPs who did not want a producer who didn't know what she was doing, but that's what they got. And as soon as I got back from this experience abroad, filming and making mistakes, so many mistakes, but luckily out of the country, so nobody knew. I came back and was able to get some jobs off of that. So it created just a little bit of buzz internally within a couple of people here, a couple of people there, what I had done. And I started to, I got my first producing job from an executive producer in the Orthodox Jewish community, which is where I come from. And he had to do some music video about, I don't know, some Jewish music video. And being in any religious music scene is very funny. I don't know if you experienced music from the church. Or, oh yeah, or I'm, a, like, I'm a Spanish Christian, so I know. So I you know what it is, right? <laughs> it is hilarious when music comes from the church, right? But then they like take it and try to bring pop back into church. And it's yeah, just like the strangest. Yes. So it's... <laughs> Those are some funny days, the types of songs and the casting and the, just the stuff that I had to do was absurd almost. And starting off, that was music videos. And so music videos are like, you've definitely done music videos. I know you've done music videos for sure. Everybody has. A couple. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting experience for sure. It's interesting. It's brutal. There were days where I was casting strippers, like on a Sunday and oh I have to talk to my mom. She's what you, so what are you doing? Like, how's it work? And I would just be like, I'm just casting some strippers for this music video. She was like, we need to get you out of this business. But like music videos where you have to do everything and it has to happen in a week. And, and sometimes it's a big name talent. So it's exciting and fun and some, and they're not who you expect them to be. And you've got to learn a lot very quickly. So I think that was a really great intro for me from, from my own stuff to this Orthodox to, to religious music. And then moving into once I started to meet people on set, moving into music videos through Def Jam and through Columbia records and getting my way into different places. So let me ask you something, Marin. How does a 19 year old that is basically in, in college or about to go into a different country, put together a production crew, find them in a different country and even know how to rent a location or get a license? Like, how do you figure all of that out with 25 of, grand? It's a lot of cosplaying. I, what I actually did was I went on the NYU website because I knew NYU had been a, a good film school. My mom had actually gone. She was not religious growing up and she had gone to this big school that I had known as NYU for her, whatever she got, something in acting. And so I went on their website and it said you could post a job. So I said, okay, okay I'm a production company. I made up some production company name and I said, I was looking to hire. I didn't know what a cinematographer really was. I knew that was something that I was probably going to need. <laughs> a, a DP. Let's um, just Google and see what happens. <laughs> exactly. If ChatGPT would have been around, this would have been so much easier. But I got listed this and said, I'm doing this. It, at that point, it was a documentary that followed four different artists in four different countries who had all experienced child sexual abuse and they were going to tell their stories through their artwork. And so I posted that little blurb and got resumes like then coming in to my inbox as a 19 year old. And I started talking to these people and getting, this is what I'm doing. And this is a production company and interviewing them to see if they would be a good teacher, ideally, because I was going to need to learn a lot. 
and I landed on a good friend, Katie, who she was in film school. She was maybe 21 if I was 19. And she thought that this was such an incredible experience. She was going to be able to go with this, this production company across the world, this established production company. Established company, yeah, exactly. And film, and film this documentary, something that, you know, as an NYU student would be great for her experience. And then she met me and, and I was a child and I think I was around her little sister's age. She said she thought I was 30 for the first couple of weeks because I was in pencil skirts, which is a different story. Got to basically said to her, this is the plan. And she said, I just don't think you're going to be able to do it in the nicest way possible. She said, you're 19. You, I can clearly see you don't understand how film works and what it takes. So if you do get this 25,000, she helped me along the way to, to put together the Kickstarter video throughout the campaign. She posted it a couple times. She was there, but she said, if you get it, call me. But if you don't, I no hard feelings. And so I think I called her the day before the Kickstarter ended and said, I think we're going to do this. I think I'm going to get this. And she basically said, call me tomorrow. If you get actually get it, and I called her and we went on our way to the airport. Like the next day we got tickets and flew out to be there for International Women's Day. That's why I wanted to rush it and get there by a specific date. Because it wouldn't be production if you don't have a made-up due date that has no relevance Very anymore. much. Yeah. <laughs> to cue everything off and like Ex completely exactly. change after, yeah. Just to like enormous amounts of pressure. So we got there and I guess a little bit before that, I was asking her questions. So I was saying, okay, we've got our DP, you're the DP at 21. What are, what else do I need? And then she would tell me and I would, and she would give me little bits of information. The rundown and you just execute mm -hmm. it. Exactly. And so I learned how to be, just do whatever was asked of me, which is. Coachable, coachable, which is great. Yes. I mean, yeah. 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 And did basically the same thing in Israel. So I posted on the Israel Tel Aviv University, their film school, posted on their board and went through everybody's reels. Anybody who connected with me and who sent me the resume, went through their reels, got on a call with them and made a, a team of three Israeli cam a cam b and sound and they were like the best guys ever one of them helped me get our cam a danielle he helped us rent all the gear told us where to go told me how to negotiate it so we were on canon c300s and we had great sound gear and we got this wow. van and we drove it around for about 15 days stayed at the interviewee the subject's house and just had it felt like camp like it was every day we got up there was some new and exciting thing to shoot. She was talking to different artists. She was in the middle of a play um, with women who were learning how to voice their uh, stories of, of abuse in various, the way that they had experienced it. So it was just the most exciting. I just felt like I was like buzzing every day and the experience of being so close to people who have similar interests to you was exciting. There's no other mm -hmm. word. I was just happy with what I was doing. And so when I got back, there was this low period where I was like, I'm not a filmmaker, but I've just done this big thing. Where do I go from here? Because I've never felt so exhilarated. I've never felt like I've had so much fun, but came about getting the message out there about my film and then connecting to other people who related to it and who could then give me jobs. So that's, that was how I got the Israel piece together, which was really fun. That's incredible. The amount of drive grit and like perseverance you show at 19 to be able to accomplish something like that and go through with it it's incredible where, where did that come yeah. from is that is that something that you feel you've had in your family that kind of entrepreneurial genes or is it something that you feel like you've developed i would say a, a big mix of both so 
where I come from is um, at 19, the girls get married and they have children at 20, 21, 22. Yeah. Fam- I've got 11 nieces and nephews, one on the way, make it 12. Don't ask me everybody's names and ages and birthdays, but I love them all. And so I think I had a set path for me that was I'm going to get out of high school. I'm going to go to an Orthodox Jewish like seminary where you learn how to be a good mom and you learn how to be a good wife and you learn Bible studies and then you get married and then you have kids and on and on and set for you. And it was clear to me very early on, which I don't know why, but it was clear to me that path wasn't my path or it wasn't going to make the most sense for me. And so then I guess everything was going to have to be, everything was going to take grit because I was going to have to get out of whatever path was set for me. I was going to have to figure everything out on my own in essence. So I think just having that mindset early on of knowing, okay, I don't fit into the, to the box. Now I have to make my own circle basically. It makes complete sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like th- you hear all these stories of people that had these predefined paths in life. A lot of the times it's family determined and they just decided to break off and venture and go into the unknown and, and carve their own personal path. And a lot of the times that path comes with a tremendous amount of strain and difficulty. And like, go- who wants to go against their family, right? Nobody. Yes, and so- I always say that. I always say that when kids come to me and they'll ask, I'm not religious anymore. A couple of times have asked me, I don't want to be religious or I want to leave the fold. And it's, I would never tell anybody what to do. And I just say is if you have support and you really don't fit in, you really want to carve your own path. Like it's going to take, it's going to take a lot. Think about this carefully, take it slowly. Don't rush anything. But the other side of that, when you can get to the other side is that there's so much adventure and unknown. And there, and it's so rewarding to carve your own path. Did it ever get lonely? Oh, the first, so that was maybe 19 and I was like just starting to, so you know, the show unorthodox on uh, Netflix. I've heard about it. I haven't watched it from the book. And they have this one scene where this woman is, she's, she leaves the fold and she rips off her wig and she eats bacon and she has sex all in the same week, like a whiplash. It's a slow process of shedding one layer at a time, unlearning things very slowly as you go, um, which feels more realistic to me. So that was more my process is that from 19 to about 22, I was just dipping my toes in. I started to put on a pair of pants. My first pair of pants that I ever put on was on set. I was producing a, a short film. I had to find this location in Jersey and it was like a national park. I had to negotiate with them. And this was about, this was like 20 cause it was a year or so after my, the documentary. So it was my first producing experience at this level. I got a $70,000 budget and had to work with that on a, I think it was like a four day shoot, right? I'm thinking about the call sheet for four day, four or four. So four day shoot, 70,000. Yeah. And it was a tremendous amount of work, tremendous amount of fun, but it was freezing. It was Jersey in the winter and it was, there was snow on the ground. It was supposed to be, the location was supposed to resemble uh, Eastern Europe. So we're out there and I put on my skirt and I realized that I'm going to be freezing. I didn't bring any tights. And so this, what I had to do, I put on some sweatpants and that was the first time in my life that I'd ever gone out in pants. So it's like a very slow one thing at a time until about now where I'm, my own person and living my own life and 
but those couple years where you're doing things on your own and have the guilt and the feelings and you're, and you, you complete, you're leaving your friends and you're, you gotta, you gotta go into the world and make a whole new set of friends. It, um, it could have been more lonely, but I think because I was on set so much that every set became my family, it became my friends, my group of friends and every, with every production and the next production that came along, I was meeting more and more people and growing my network of people who had similar interests and people who maybe didn't look like me, but had, but shared the same interests as, as I did. And so we really got along. So that gave me a community. So I think that was the blessing of what production could do for me that I didn't even know at the time. One of the, one of the most interesting things I found about just producing any kind of content is the diversity of people you work with all the different backgrounds, experiences, paths that everybody has followed to get to where they are, whether it's an actor or a producer or a DP or a grip or whatever it is, it's the concoction of characters. It's incredible. A concoction of characters. And then there's always the stereotypes. The TV yeah. department has their stereotypes. The DP, oh, in LA, you always have those vegan DPs and yeah. they need all their their fixings and stuff. They come with their own riders. Like yeah. you got all the different characters, the the producers who are running around with their heads cut off. It's very fun. Obviously. It's interesting because it's one of the, it's an industry. We're based in Los Angeles. We go to New York quite a lot, but even, and I would say mostly in Los Angeles, it's still an incredibly relationship driven industry where yes. Everyone likes to work with the people they, so everybody ends up bringing the people they know into productions, given opportunities. Opportunities are distributed through relationships most of the time. Even for us as a production company, a production agency, I still don't know the difference. We talk about that. Yeah, exactly. I want to get into that. We get a lot of our work through relationships, with the exception of obviously QuickFrame and other partners. It's really like word of mouth as people that have talked to us, heard about us. And so it, it's, I like that. I like that that's still the way it is after so long. And it, it goes to the importance of building those relationships. Have you had any key mentors or people that you feel have changed the course of your career over the past few years that have been catalysts or maybe gave you the right piece of advice that has gotten to, you, to, to where you are? Advice that I think about in my personal projects would be when I took my documentary to different filmmakers and ask them to please just watch it. And I would find their, their emails online, look up documentaries that I liked, see if I could contact the filmmakers and ask them if they would watch what I had or read what I had written up, something like that. And, and somebody got back to me, I have to cite her name. I think it's Susan Saladoff. <clears throat> Susan Saladoff, I believe is her name from Hot Coffee. So I might need to check that for make sure that's the honest truth. But she, this great documentary and got back to me and said, you have no story. There's no story in this. <laughs> it means nothing. And then I, sh I showed it to an Israeli filmmaker when I was in Israel at some point editing. And he's a, a professor at one of the film schools there. And he pulled down in his apartment. He was my aunt's neighbor. So I walk right across the hallway to go and knock on his door and ask him as a film buff and, and a professor, if you would watch this and give me some notes. And he watched it and he said, Again, absolutely no story here. You have to, you have to make a story. That to me was like the catalyst for learning what is filmmaking, the ability to produce, to put these things, to put all the pieces together, your crew, your gear, your locations, and keep it all within budget, create wrap books versus storytelling, getting into this understanding, what is a story? What am I trying to say? 
regardless of what I'm trying to say, what do I have here? What does it say? What does the story tell itself? How does the story tell itself? How do I want to tell the story? So learning the difference between the two that yes, I could put the pieces together, but could I actually tell a story from this was something big. So that, that kind of brought me back to the drawing board a little bit about filmmaking. So personally, I guess those would be two, two um, examples that stand out, but professionally each job that I had, especially as a freelancer would propel me to the next job. And so each director I would work with would give me a little bit more information. Each producer I would work under would teach me a little bit more. I went from asking the DP what a DP is to learning how to build a wrap book with an executive producer. Each one was going to teach me a skill that I needed to learn to get to the next step until I was able to have a, a robust resume that showed that I knew what I was doing and that I could work within a company and help them achieve their goals within, within this space. It's, it really is. One of the things that I admire the most when I moved to the States back in 2014 is the access that you have to the people that is willing to help you. And I got to tell you, that's not something I experienced in Europe. I feel like people in yeah. Europe are, I don't know if they're more conservative, more held back, but the idea of somebody young, smart, making big moves, it's almost like, I don't know, there's this jealousy in a way, or I don't really know how to explain it. But I came here and I came here through a mentor and it changed my life. And I feel like in this country, every time there is somebody with high potential, they elevate them. They mm -hmm. take whatever they have and just give them a chance to really do something meaningful. And that's one of the things that I love the most about being here. I like that you say that because my experience has mostly been here and I have had that experience. I would say that's very true. Anybody who I've reached out to, even if I felt like maybe the, they were being wholly honest with me, they, at least they were helping me. Nobody said that they couldn't help me or wouldn't help me. They would just do it however they could. And I would take whatever pieces I could get. So I, I completely hear that and agree. By the way, a funny thing, you mentioned the, the joggers earlier. I feel since I moved to the States, I haven't taken the joggers off, <laughs> especially to That's LA. Nice. It's, it's so laid back how people dress. So I just like, I keep wearing joggers all day. And that's literally production where I just be in my cargos or my joggers and a hoodie and that's it. Yeah. You're all blacks and, and that's it. Yeah. I loved, I think so. So uh, my career has influenced my style or my choice of career, choice of lifestyle has, has definitely influenced my style. Again, coming from where I was coming from Orthodox Jewish, you have to dress a certain way. So I was coming into this new world and I had no idea what was going on, had no inkling of fashion or streetwear or anything. And then you go into production and depending on, I'm sure, depending on where you are in the world, the big ones, LA versus New York, your production style is a little bit different, but New York, it's like a bit of a skater feel. So it was yep. just a lot of SB dunks and your streetwear hoodies, your cargos, your whatever. And it was super fun to come into this world and be like, okay, I'm getting the hang of what we can all, how we all dress, how we talk, how, what we do. It was, it was very fun to learn the world through this space. A hundred percent. A lot of people dressing in black in production, I guess it's because they're constantly like bashing against like equipment and gear and like suitcases. And I think you just get dirty overall. Um, yeah. Yeah. Your production blacks. Exactly. Yeah. It always works. Yeah. So fast forward a little bit into quick frame. You're working with a team there. Obviously you work with a ton of agencies and creators. What, what would you say are some of the key 
um, differentiators from the more successful agencies slash production companies versus the ones that are not really finding their groove. And feel free to jump into your definition of production company versus production agency. I'd love to hear. Sure, we've got to get into that. And I don't have a right answer, right? But I would say what stands out is companies who, production companies is what I'll call them for right now, production companies who are nimble, flexible, can scale up, can scale down. We're moving in a certain direction, at least in general. Of course, there's always going to be the Super Bowl ads. There's always going to be the, the multi-million dollar agencies that have a ton of money to put into different ads and commercials and music videos. And in general, we're looking at social content first. We're looking at CTV, OTT ads, and that is needs to be easily repeatable. It's going to go up and down, meaning like you've got to put it up, test it, bring it down, put some new assets up. Like it's rinse and repeat. Companies need a ton of assets just to stay relevant. So production companies who can be nimble and provide that to these brands, I think stand out for the brands because they're able to make relationships with each other. Production companies can get to know these brands a little bit more and as, as as they can be flexible for the brands and make the assets that the brands need, the brands, like you said, will build that connection with them and continue to call on them. Although you're not getting the one project at $350,000 a year anymore, I think it's like you take that $350,000 and that's the annual budget and be the production company who can execute $10,000 productions every two month. Weeks. Or three weeks. Yeah, every two weeks, every three weeks. Yeah, exactly. Be and we see production companies who turn that down. They say that's that budget's too low. We can't execute because they don't see the larger vision of make that connection and get that $350,000 annual. So, it's interesting. Yeah. It, it's a lot of one of the things with production, you have a ton of um, fixed cost, right? So you have yes. a ton of overhead. And so I can see a lot of these like bigger companies, bigger production companies that are like big sort of things to move and steer why they just their operations and their infrastructure does not allow for them to scale down to that level of production way too much overhead we've got yeah. way too much overhead and and it's hard because you don't it works for the people who are a part of production companies that are that big and who have many people on salary that's awesome because you're getting a salary job and it's secure i'm not saying that everybody should break their production companies apart into smaller pieces but it's just i think it's about figuring out how to use your resources to wisely, max efficiency, yeah. Yeah, very wisely. Yeah. Use what I you think the, the, the scaling up and scaling down is so interesting. You mentioned that because it's aligned with where the world is going with this sort of everybody's their own business, right? Like the freelancer industry, like the work remote, people are less inclined, especially in our generation, people are less inclined to have full-time jobs, right? They want the flexibility. They want to do tours of duty. And yeah. I think if you're as a production company, you have the operations to be able to accommodate that. You can take advantage of it. I feel like we've really put an emphasis on that and not try to retain talent, but more like bring opportunities and then figure it out, okay, who's, who's best suited for that. I got to tell you, one of the things we've learned though is verticalization helps. So you become a specialist and say for us, and this is something we've been fighting for a long time, like beauty is our thing. Beauty, cosmetics, personal care is really our thing. And yeah. we've tried to, I don't know, part of us is like, why? Like, why can't we just do a little bit of everything? And what you realize is that the more you can verticalize, the more the more of a specialty you can develop. And the people you work with and the content you produce and the results. But I think a lot of companies are really scared to go there because at the beginning is tough. 
because you're basically saying no to a lot. So you're saying no to a lot of businesses, right? Think about the cycle of starting a company. You start a company, you say yes to every opportunity. You're like, I want to do work. And there has to be a point over time where you start saying no to things that don't fall in your ICP, your ideal customer persona, because your workflows are not built for it. Your processes are not built for it. You don't have this expertise. And so you got to start narrowing down. And that doesn't mean you can only do one thing, but I think there's this, you have to find a small subset of things that you do really well and try to stick to that as much as you can. I would say that personally and professionally, both being an expert in your own field and then building a team around the areas that you're not an expert in or that you find other experts is the best way to do it, to build a strong team. I think that the interesting thing there is, is having the channels. Like you said, the relationships with those brands that, that keep coming back. Production, it is a seasonal business, unlike Media Buy or unlike other services that are ongoing the same every month. With production, a company might produce, again, $150,000 worth of content one month and then nothing for three months. And so yeah. that elasticity, it is hard to model that elasticity into a business. It's almost like you're yeah. running a seasonal restaurant on a beach somewhere. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yes, there's. it's very hard to, um, to know what's coming down the pipeline and to plan for that when things are, also with COVID, when things were, you had your job set up, you had your clients, and then everything changed in an instant. And your clients aren't doing business anymore and people are, and you're, talent roster changes. I think everybody's whole network shifted a little bit during that time. What is the role that you think technology is going to have in the coming years? Things like generative AI, chat GPT, text to video, text to voice. How is that going to change the scene? And what have you seen so far that's already started to? I would say what I've seen so far is a lot of scripting on chat GPT. And I, I can say that with QuickFrame, the, the marketplace model. So we get um, applications in. And so it's a written, part of it, part of the application process is a written um, pitch. And I think I've been able to tell a couple of pitches that come in that are chat laying out here. The Here's the input, here's the information about the project and what's the best way for me to position my production company in order to win this opportunity. So there's a definitely a voice. I think that ChatGPT has like a, a tone that comes out. So I've seen people are starting to use it. Use cases are very light right now in terms of just scripting and pitching and fixing up their emails. I know internally we, we can sometimes rely on it for rewording an email, grammar and punctuation when we don't want to use Grammarly, assisting with scripting if we need to, if there's something that we need in there um, to help out. But I think the use cases are endless. I'm a big, I'm a big opportunist there. And I think that I look, I'm very positive about where we're going. I think there's a lot of room to say that the world is ending. We don't know how this is going to be used. And we don't know if people are going to use this to make propaganda films or not type to video propaganda. But I think that people typically are, are good at taking these technologies and using them very creatively. So I'm pretty excited to see the creativity that comes out of through this accessibility. If we can have more people telling more stories through these tools that are just more accessible, it, I, I relate it to cameras 
becoming cheaper and more accessible and available. We're just getting better stories. You get, you get Tangerine and you get that, which becomes the Florida project. You get these directors who can just do more with less. And I think that then feeds right into the industry, being able to provide more assets and be able to, in, in the business ad space, being able to do more there too. So I think it's going to, it's, I think it's going to provide efficiencies and I think it's going to just blow creativity out of the water. I think we're going to see a lot come from it. It's really, it's really fascinating to be at this point in time where entire industries can really change almost overnight. And it's going to be interesting to see who's able to adapt. It's almost like, an, in a way, it kind of, it's like an extension event, right? If you think of the dinosaurs, okay, what are the animals that are able to survive underwater? Right? Yes. Like, yeah, survival sun. of the fittest. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think That's in a way it's exciting. It is exciting yeah. yet to see because you'll see who has the most resilient business models, who's able to mm -hmm. adapt their teams and their infrastructure and processes to adapt to those things and to serve clients in a new way. One of the things we've launched is a, a text -a photo service. And um, the interesting thing has been, it's been a mixed, mixed feelings. There's a lot of adoption. Like a lot of people came into the wait list. I would say the majority of them are small brands that want to get started with content and don't have the budget to produce video or like original content. I think the unintended consequence of that could be we see a lot of the same flavor stuff. So in the same way that you see all those applications that kind of sound the same, I have a feeling that we're going to see a lot of base layer content that's going to start to feel equal or like very similar. It's the templatization, I think, of, yeah, the different softwares have a similar tone, a similar style. You're typing it in, you're getting the same. Yeah, you're getting the same output. I think you're right. Maybe there's almost a limited amount. We have these different verticals and I'm watching these videos every day that come through QuickFrame. We do all of these ads. I feel like every ad that I see nowadays comes from QuickFrame by Mountain. And there is a similar, you see, it. there's a certain amount of verticals and a certain amount of ways to tell that brands tell their stories. And almost like a limited amount of styles of animation. We have the explainer style and we want it to look like this. Brands copy each other and they, and their inspiration is from each other. So I like Johnson and Johnson likes Colgate's explainer video. And so now Johnson and Johnson has a very similar explainer video to Colgate. And maybe it's internal, external, you don't know who's watching it, but it all, they all get inspiration from each other. And so I feel like creative is limited now anyway. And so I'm hoping that with what you're doing with how creators and production companies are utilizing this, the new technologies. So I, I'm hoping that it, it, the efficiencies that it brings into production and into post will actually create more variety of creativity. That's what I'm thinking and hoping. I'm not sure if that's, if it's going to be like you say, just more templatized, like you have, you input what you want and there's a limited amount of creative that is outputted, or if we can just if creators have the ability to scale more and do more because it's a lot easier and faster. I, I'm an optimist. So I hope that this, my hope is that we see a ton of indie beauty brands get started. Mm -hmm. Not so many of them pass that middle face of scaling because they just don't have the funds. So a lot of them kind of die at that point. My hope with this is that a lot of those smaller founder driven, personal story driven indie beauty brands that start actually will survive and will be able to thrive because of like more to affordable access to, to content, which in the way is like the, the fuel of how they get to customers. 
How would you say that they could differentiate themselves at that phase without having to spend that money? Is it through social content? As a creator, as a production company, how do you see the, the success there for them? I think a lot of these, a lot of these interviewer brands that we talk to that might not qualify to, to work with us necessarily, they're always like 90% of them have a really strong personal story behind it. The mom, the African-American mom that has sons that have a skin condition and like the current cosmetic products or the current moisturizers don't work for their type of skin. The, the immigrant entrepreneur that came from South America and wants to bring a specific type of product or compound from down there that's like incredibly useful for something and it's been their family for generations, but it's never been formulated. There's like just crazy, incredible stories of all this, basically a single operator businesses that are launching products that are like incredibly hard driven. And I think a lot of the times those stories don't come through. They just don't come through because they don't have the capacity, they don't have the knowledge, understanding the tool set to make those stories come through and be heard. And I think if we get more of those, frankly, people would enjoy, I think, and gravitate more to us purchasing those products than purchasing something for from a huge company that doesn't have as close of a story. If I put two products in front of you and one is made with love, care, and like this crazy personal story versus another one that's like a huge conglomerate, what are you like to, to go towards? Oh, the one that speaks to you, right? Yeah, of course. Of exactly. Course. But a lot of these founders are like, they're single operators. They're not necessarily story, storytellers. They're not branding experts. And they're already doing 10 different things, formulating, packaging, distribution, storage, e-commerce. And I think if you can have tools that can help them handle the content side of things yeah, yeah. And, and, and continue to do what they're best at, I think we're going to see a... Uh, an affluence of a lot more brands that would be interested for interesting for consumers that are not part of the Unilevers, the Procter and Gamble, the Johnson's, Sephora, the Ulta Beauty, which I have nothing against that. But I, I hope there was other pathways for smaller brands to make it there. And hopefully, so help. what do you think in, about just the cost of getting your story out there for Procter and Gamble? It means nothing to throw it on every social and to every ad placement that they, that they want, need, can imagine. But for a small brand, what are the options for them? I think the beauty of a marketplace is that if you even out the playing field, then there's more competition. It's just marketplace dynamics, right? And so if now you have smaller brands have access to tools that big brands didn't even have access to two years ago, then it starts becoming really interesting um, mm -hmm. because in order for them to launch, they don't need a $50,000, $100,000 campaign. And not just that, I think also AI is going to open probably other distribution opportunities that are going to be more affordable. Like today you have ads, you have billboards, you have print, you have OTT, CTV, TV ads. I think down the line, as these tools become more pervasive, there's going to be other, I would say other uh, online properties that I think will be places to feature these products and to feature recommendations. Just the fact that search is gonna change dramatically, mm -hmm. um, I think it's also gonna be an advantage. Um, I see that. Going so back a little bit to, sorry to, to interrupt, but going back a little bit to what we, you had mentioned before about the relationships, how 
uh, you like how those relationships are built and and how things are word of mouth, jobs are, are awarded by word of mouth and connections. I think that's fantastic. But I also think that what you just mentioned about the marketplace model, I've seen it firsthand with QuickFrame, how, how beneficial it is to the whole industry. We are seeing these small production companies work with brands and have access to connecting with brands who they would never have had access to before because of the gatekeeping and the connections and that closed knit community. So a company, two, two brothers in Iowa who have an Alexa mini and a lot of talent and they're great storytellers were not connected to Colgate and Fresh Pet in New York prior to opening this marketplace up. And Fresh Pet was never, ever going to tap two brothers from Ohio, Iowa, wherever I said, to do their branding until we opened it up, until this marketplace came to be. And those two connections, that connection was made and the opportunities are just endless there. So I think that distribution, we're going to see a lot more creativity as distribution is wider throughout the industry as through this marketplace model. I think that's the direction that I see that we're going and I really like it, that it's not based off of almost like Nepo baby stuff. It's now it's really based off of what's your work look like. And also I would say COVID too, is just remote work is now way more the way the true the, of, of work. And so teams who would never have opportunities before to work with certain brands out of state are getting these opportunities and helping brands tell their stories in an even better way and access different, different channels that they weren't able to before. So I think it's, I love the connectivity and like the connections made and the word of mouth that production offers and that this industry has always lived by. And it's benefited me being on one production and not knowing as a freelancer what my next gig would be. But this one said to this one and that one that this one could do that one. And, and then that, then I have a new job. So I love that. But at the same time, I think that the marketplace is going to open us up to, to see a lot more creativity from a lot more creators who are working with brands that they never thought that they could before, uh, that they could work with before. So I think it's exciting. I guess it's like wrapping it up. I think that the marketplace model is a very exciting way to, to get brands connected to, to more creators and, and get their message out there. Miriam, this has been amazing. I feel like we've gone, I don't know, 15 minutes, maybe over, <laughs> but oh, I, I oh, just, really? oh, wow. this has been amazing. I've been learning so okay. much. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to end it. I feel like we need, oh. we need Same. like, I still have questions for you. We have to do a follow-up. We, we need a version two. Yes. So we okay. need a, a follow-up of this interview and do a version two, Great. version three. Good. I continue Good. to explore topics because this has been yes. super amazing. And at some uh, point we're going to get you on the quick frame podcast TV. Oh yeah. Yes. We, yes. we love to, is it launched yet? Not yet. It's in the, it's in the works. It's in the works. Yeah. Yes. We'd love to be there. Absolutely. Okay. It'd be awesome. But Mira, thank you so much. Enjoy. Thank I know you. you're taking some time off, so yes. definitely enjoy yeah, it. Enjoying Mexico very much. I love it over here. And it's amazing. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to Of talk course. To you.